Amen. So we are in 2 Samuel chapter 22. This is a song. And songs are really important because I'm sure there's songs from your childhood or just songs that come on the radio that maybe you haven't heard in a long time and they just take you somewhere. You can smell things that you haven't thought of in a long time. You think of people you may have forgotten and places that you haven't been in a long time because your brain, when you sing songs, it, release, it releases uh, oxytocin and all these chemicals that are feel-good chemicals when you sing. Singing is super, super important. And so God, he wants us as his people when we get together to sing because we need to lock into our brain, this is who God is. So David, when he was young, he wrote this psalm. It's Psalm 18. And this psalm is just basically, hey, here's who God is. Here's how God has delivered me and come through for me. And keeping that God's laws led to a fruitful life. And so he writes this psalm. And his nation, as he's king, they routinely would sing this song congregationally. Um, This, in 2 Samuel chapter 22, is David repenning that psalm, essentially. It's slightly different. What it is, it's a king addressing his nation, saying, this is our God. I've been through a lot in these last few years, if the nation of Israel has not noticed. There's been some turmoil. There's been some distress. There's been some craziness. But the God of my youth is the God who's still in control today. And when I die, the God of my youth is going to be the God who's going to be with you and be a safe refuge and be a deliverer. And so this song is a song you have to have locked into your head. I believe that's what he's trying to communicate to his nation that God has entrusted him to lead is you need to know this. You need to have it memorized. It needs to be in your head. It it reminds me of the Israelites, when they leave Exodus and they cross the Red Sea, the first thing they do is they sing a song. Because they need to have locked into their heads, there's going to be moments in the future when things are really hard, when we feel like there's not going to be anything to eat, when there's enemies who have been trained in warfare their entire lives and we only know how to bake bricks. Like there's going to be adversaries, there's going to be obstacles. We need to, in those moments, sing this song, be reminded of the smell of the salt in the air, be reminded of the, the hot sun as we were passing through the Red Sea. We need to be reminded of this is who our God is. I think this is the same thing. David is saying, we're going to sing this song. I want it when you guys tell the story of, of Israel's history and the stuff that went on with my life, that this would be something you recount. This is who our God is. So um, 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1 and 2 start like this. And David spoke to the Lord's the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, so here's where the song starts. The song has got three movements, and they repeat. You know how there's like verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, and if it's a Christian song, bridge, 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 bridge. <laughs> so this song goes like this. It goes verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, verse. So the two end points, where it starts where it ends is the same. The two secondary points are the same, and the middle point is one, one thought. So what it is is this, is... This is who our God is. That's how it starts and how it ends. This is who our God is. He's a a shield. He's a fortress. He's a deliverer. He is our salvation. The second part that's going to hit and the second to last part that's going to hit is our God has delivered and he's going to deliver again. 
And then the middle section just repeats what's at the heart of the Torah and, and just a, a bunch of the Old Testament is, if you live obediently to this God, you're gonna have a fruitful life. It might be hard. There might be enemies. In fact, for David, you could count on it. That's why it repeats right after that. It's gonna be fruitful. There's gonna be hard stuff, but this is who our God is. So that's the movement of the song. And so the song begins like this. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Verse three, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. And so David, like what's more important than making sure that your kids know who your God is? Like it said that, that our God has no grandchildren, right? He just has children. So you need to raise up your kids, train your kids. So this is who our God is. I think this is what David is doing. This is who our God is. For me, he's been a rock. He has been a fortress. He's been a deliverer. He's been the one I take refuge in. He's a shield. What's the imagery that David is trying to really push? David is really trying to give to the nation. God is strong. And when you're in distress, he's the one that you can run to for safety, for help. He's able to deliver and he's able to save. And so there's some people who take that idea I believe a lot of them are saved and really good people, but they take that idea and they teach it like this, that if you just have enough faith in this God who is a shield and a refuge and a stronghold and someone you could run to when everything is chaotic and crazy, if you have enough faith in him, the chaotic craziness of the world can't touch you. Unfortunately, there's a man, his name, uh, I believe, I know he's in heaven. Uh, his name is uh, Bishop Gerald Glenn. And what he did in 2020 is he said, our God, and this is true, our God is bigger than COVID-19. That is a true statement. Unfortunately, Bishop Gerald Glenn was a big guy and COVID got him. And so then for people in his congregation where he teaches, if you just have enough faith in this God, well, COVID can't hurt you. And then he dies of COVID. That does a lot of damage, right? That hurts real bad. Here's what, here's what David is teaching. David is saying, he's a shield. Do, do shields mean that there's no danger? That nothing's gonna hurt you? Because I was driving around in San Diego when I lived down there. I, I was raised, I was born in San Diego. We moved up here when I hit high school and then I went back down there for a job and I was just driving through some streets I hadn't seen in a long time. And I, so I wanted to go see the, the little lake that's in Lakeside. I wanted to go drive around and I cut through this apartment complex. I remember walking through when I was a kid and um, I'm listening to music really loudly. I'm not paying attention to my surroundings. I'm like 18, you know, it is what it is. And all of a sudden, the SWAT team just, I, I see this, this SWAT truck pull up. I pull over, its lights are on. They pull in front of me. They've got their siren going and these dudes jump out and they've got riot shields and they've got big guns and they go running into the apartment complex. Because what happened is a man had taken his girlfriend hostage. A police officer did a quality of life check because they heard a disturbance. The man took the police officer hostage. So you just, you up the ante, you know? And so, yeah, that's the guy you want to play poker with. He knows, he knows how to play. So um, don't know how it went down because for me, when I saw the men with shields, my brain didn't say, oh, there's shields here, we're safe. 
No, when I saw the shields, it communicated to me, something is bad right now. They think they need that. I'm out. Right? The shields communicated there is danger. What David is saying here is there is danger. Our God is able to deliver, but do shields work if they're across the room from you? Do shields, for me, was I protected by that man's shield? No way. Shields work the closer you are to him, right? You, a fortress works if you're in it. Not if, I, if I'm like, oh, we got a fortress over there, I'm safe. No way. You got to be near it. You got to be close to it. David is not teaching, hey, if you trust in this God, you're not going to get sick. You, the enemies aren't going to hurt you. He's saying, if you trust in this God, our God is able to come through for you even in the midst of all that craziness, that you'll see God move in a way that blows your mind. Ephesians 6 says that for the New Testament believers, we're supposed to take up the shield of faith. And so, okay, so we take up a shield of faith. Shields are supposed to offer us protection. If I, if I draw near to God, what does that get me? Because the Bible says we have a real enemy who wants to throw fiery darts at you. A real enemy who wants to see, to see you killed and destroyed, who wants to see your kids strung out, who wants to see your marriage messed up. What do you do with that? The Bible does not promise you and I that we're going to be absent from danger or that we're, there's going to be no danger for believers, but it says that you can have something in that danger. You could have something in the midst of that stress and that turmoil and that hardship and that difficulty. You can have a confidence. You can have a peace. You can even have joy when you're going through it. Because here's what the Bible says. The shield of faith is supposed to extinguish the darts of the evil one. Faith doesn't mean that there, the shield of faith doesn't mean there's not going to be no danger. It means you get something through it. Romans 5.2 says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Have you guys heard that before? We rejoice in the hope of the glory. This is a song I love where the, the bridge is, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I'm like, that's so fun, but it doesn't give you the end part. Because we like the part where we feel like we're rejoicing in the hope of glory of God. It follows that verse with saying, not only that, we don't rejoice just in the hope of the glory of God, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And that part's a bummer. That's a harder thing to do, right? How can you rejoice in your sufferings? We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. What, what I think it means when it's saying that God is your shield, the person you can run to and that stuff, isn't saying you're going to be absent from danger, but you're going to see God actually come through for you in a real, tangible way. So you think about David. Did David see God to, to be these things? So when David's a young boy, young boy, he's a man after God's own heart, even from his youth, he shows up on the battlefield, immediately gets beat up by his brother, if you notice that. He shows up, he brings them sandwiches because his dad told him to. He got left behind with the sheep. And there's a man out in the battlefield, his name is Goliath, who's cursing God. And he gets there, he goes, he, David starts asking questions. His brothers beat him up a little bit. And he goes, what did I do to offend you, man? Come on. He just, just beat up little guy. No one thinks anything of him. But he looks at this, this man who's cursing God, and he goes, I bet you my God can do something about that. I bet you my God's bigger than him. Once Goliath falls, do you think David is afraid of enemies now? No way. You think about like Shadrach, Shadrach Meshach, and Abednego. How terrifying would it be for, to be standing in front of the king? Because there's a long narrative there. They're standing in front of the king having a discourse about, if you bow down before my idol, I will not throw you in the fire. They get thrown into the fire. 
And then they see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and one who looks like the Son of God. Jesus is standing there in the fire with them. Nebuchadnezzar goes, how many did we throw in? Uh, three, my Lord, like in Shrek. And they lead them out. And Nebuchadnezzar, so do you think about like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do you think that in a future situation where someone said, you need to bow down before our idol, that they even wavered for a second? No way, because they're suffering. They're very real, tangible suffering. They're tied up, they're bound, they're getting thrown into the fire. David's suffering. He is about to face a giant who has killed people before. Their situation that they've gone through, they've tangibly seen Jesus move, and they go, you know what? The next time, I bet she's going to do it again. Our suffering produces endurance. Endurance just means you don't get worn down as bad. You can go through more, you can face more, you can... You can it, it takes way more to wear you out. That's what endurance means. We rejoice in our sufferings as Christians because we know our God is a shield. I'm going to see God come through for me in a way that next time I'm not going to get worn up as worn down as bad because I'm going to see him come through for me. So our suffering produces endurance and our endurance produces character. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for David, if you've seen God come through for you that way, you know, you know what? I don't have to cheat and lie and steal and, and try to, to do this backhanded thing to come out on top because I've seen my God come through for me before. So I can be a man of integrity and I can be a man who's generous and honest and, and I can do the right thing and stand up for the wrong things going on in this world, even if it means I might lose my job or lose friendships or, or people on social media will cancel me and want me gone. It doesn't matter because I've seen my God come through and I bet she's going to do it again. So suffering produces endurance, endurance character, and character produces hope because I've seen God come through for me. I think that's what it means when he says God is a shield, God is a fortress, it doesn't mean that you're going to be absent from suffering and from chaos and from hardship. It means when you go through it, you get a different mindset. Your mindset isn't, oh my gosh, this is going to be so hard. Your mindset is, I cannot wait to see how God comes through for me. You think about David, man, all the hardship going on in his life, everything after Goliath, you almost think that has to be the perspective. I can't wait to see how God comes through for me. I, I think about the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story is, is particularly amazing because I just think for those young men, we don't really hear much about them after that, but for those young men, how amazing they must have been from then on because you just go, my God comes through. What if we had that attitude? Now my God comes through. I think that changes everything. And so David, for his community, for his kingdom, he, he wants to start out by saying, our God will come through for you. Our God is a shield. Our God is a fortress. He will come through for you. So that is who our God is. This is the second part. So this is now our God is able to deliver. So verse five, for the waves of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Are any of those things true for David? Totally. That guy faced death a lot. Like you think about, he's, he's faced Goliath, kills him. He then has his, he, he knows he's going to be his predecessor. Like Saul is now his boss and gives him this impossible job. I want you to go kill 100 Philistines. These are war-trained, battle-hardened men. And really, David is still kind of just a shepherd's boy who had maybe a lucky victory against a, a, 
a giant, right? In Saul's perspective. He puts an impossible situation in front of him. David has seen death. David has been in a situation where death has been all around him. David then will be in the political realm because he writes this after Saul. He'll be in the political realm where people will be backstabbing and trying to get him to fail and trying to undermine him constantly. There will be enemies on all front for him. He has seen this. And so in verse 7, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. We have a very uniquely Christianity has a, has a personal God, a God who wants a intimate relationship with you. I called upon the Lord to my God. I called. We had in this room, 500 kids from vacation Bible school. So you just, it's chaos. It's controlled chaos, but it's, there's just talking. You've got four-year-olds all the way up to 12-year-olds, like just, and then the adults on all that. And my daughter could be right here on this corner and my wife on the other corner. And when she says, mommy, mom hears. You know, moms have that unique ability, right? They could just pick their kids' sound out. My kids can be in the living room going, dad, 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 and I won't hear it. This is the craziest thing. <laughs> but moms, they just have that. Our God, he hears your voice. No matter what is going on, the chaos, the distractions, everything, our God is such a personal God that when you cry out to him, he hears. God hears your voice. David is saying, He's the kind of God you can run to and know that he hears your voice. He's able to be involved. He can be trusted as a shield and as a fortress. And so in verse 8, he says, this is phenomenal. I, I think, I don't think I think of God in this light enough. So look at verse 8 and down. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. This is the picture that David paints of his God. When he cries out for help, God responds in this way. Have you ever seen Revenant? Where you have DiCaprio, he's coming through the woods and there's a baby bear. And there's this moment, you could see, DiCaprio's a phenomenal actor. There's this moment where you see he's like, this is bad. And then mama bear's there. Okay, this is, this is papa bear. This is God. Like God, David cries out to God and this is the picture David writes of this is how God responds when his kid are, kids are in distress and are angry. I think we often forget the kind of God that we're praying to when there's spiritual stuff going on in this world. This is the God that we follow who's got our back, who's got, who will come, will... There's a song that I love. It says, the God 
who holds the heavens and commands the stars above is the God who bends to bless us with an unrelenting love. We have that kind of God who gets up from his throne. He hears us from his temple. I will get out and I'll get involved. And this is how I look. This is how I look when my kids are messed with. There's this book called um, Lord Teach Us How to Pray. It's an old, old, old book. I don't even know if it's in print anymore, but we had it in our library here for a long time. And the opening chapter was about how terrifying, how terrifying it is for the enemy to know that this is the God that we have access to like that. And if we were, as God's people, recognized that and ran to him more frequently knowing that he's a defender, that he's a God who's, who's going to take my cries and my pleas and my worries and my anxieties seriously and get involved Man, wouldn't that change my perspective on everything? If I looked at, if I thought when I'm in distress, when I'm hurting, my God is this kind of warrior God. Dude, David was able to face some hard things in life because this is the God who follows me. This is the God who's, who's gonna come and save me when I'm in distress. If you read this again, it sounds terrifying, but this God's not angry with David or with you. It's a God coming to save his people who are in distress and in hardship. And so in verse 17, God delivers him. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So this God that we're talking about, who is these things, he is able to deliver. Why does God help you? Why did God help David? Why did God call Israel Israel out of Egypt? Why did God do that? When a wife asks a husband, a very dangerous question, why do you love me? Husband's got to think. Everything is on the line right now, right? Because it's an important question. Why do you love me? And the husband could, could have a, lo- a lot of reasons, you know? I, I like when we go on hikes. I like when we talk. I like the way that you make me laugh. I like, um, I like the things that we do together. I, I, I like how beautiful you are. I, there's a lot of things that, that there could be. I like how smart you are. And all of those answers, they seem really good for a moment, but they're all the wrong answer. All of those answers are wrong. Because all of those things are temporary. All of those things are conditional. Beauty fades. Car accidents happen. Life happens and maybe you you get older and you can't go on trips. You can't go on walks anymore. Sometimes you're just not funny anymore. My wife hasn't thought I was funny in years. (laughs) She used to think I was hysterical. (laughs) But life happens. It's conditional. So what's the right answer there? Why, Why do I love you? How come God wants to help David? Why does God help Israel? Why does God help us? God tells us in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8, I think it's such a great text. This is why God loves you, and this is the only right answer for a husband to say to his wife when she asks, why do you love me? Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8 says this. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. 
So, hey, it's not because you were the best or the brightest or the smartest or had the best resources or had the most potential. It wasn't because you were beautiful or kind. It wasn't because of any situation. It was not that you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but, verse 8 says, it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What did that just say? It is not because you are any of these things that the Lord loves you, but it's because the Lord loves you that he brought you out. God loves you because he loves you. That's the only right answer for a husband to say to your wife. I love you because I love you and I made a promise. That's what God says here. I love you and I, and I chose you because I love you and I'm keeping the oath I swore to your fathers. God loves you because he loves you because he loves you. This God came through for David because he loves him. Not because he was great, because David was small. Not because he was strong, because he was weak. God loves David because he loves David. This is who our God is. This is the God who's able to deliver and then David's going to tell us obedience to this God is going to lead to flourishing for the nation and for the individual. So verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. This was before Uriah and Bathsheba. Like, just to, if that verse is like, hold on. <laughs> For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt and the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness in his sight. So why did God choose David in, over anyone else in Israel after Saul proved himself to be unfit, unfit to lead? is because David took God seriously and, and obeyed his commands and, and respected God's laws. That man judges by outward appearance, but God judges by the heart. The Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. He, he really did seek to do the right thing, stand up for the weak, to fight for justice. Saul, what happens with him is he sins and he makes excuses and points fingers and tries to shift the blame. David, he sins pretty badly, right? Saul was just pretty much impatient and didn't do what God wanted him to do. You would almost say that's minor, but you, you blame shift, you point fingers, you, you make it someone else's fault. David does a major thing. He has adultery and murders somebody. The difference is, is David is repentant and that David doesn't make excuses or try to shift the blame or try to say it's someone else's fault. He goes, it was me. I made this mistake. It, it destroys him. As a New Testament believer, disobedience, like what Saul did, it's not going to get you kicked out because nothing can ever kick you out because if Jesus' work on the cross that, that is given to you by grace, there's no act of yours that could ever undo what Jesus did on the cross. So it's not going to get you kicked out, but it will cause you to miss out on everything that God has for you. That God's got this plan and he wants you to be a part of it and he wants you to participate in it and he's got these things that he's set in motion that he wants you to be in but sometimes our disobedience, our unwillingness to, to obey, to listen, to do what God wants us to do will just cause us to miss out and God will find someone else to do it. And in a way, that's what happens with Saul and David. God had big things for Saul. Saul's disobedient. Well, you miss out now and I'll find someone else who's got a willing heart who will follow me seriously. 
and he finds David. In verse 26, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. So Jesus tells this parable about these men who their master gives them talents. And the first two, they take them and they, they do things to multiply them. And when the master comes back, they say, hey, uh, I invested, I, I, I did things, and I made the, the, the amount that you left me with, I, I got increase. Here you go. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You, you had that increase. I'm going to give you more. I'm going to trust you with more. The second one goes, I did the same thing. And there's this greater increase. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going to give you even more. I'm going to be even more generous with you. I want to see you do even greater things. But then you have the third one, the third servant. And it's Matthew 25, starting in verse 24. This is what he says. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. At the coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant out into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think how you... See God, what you think about God is how you get God. Isn't that true? That whatever you think is the most supreme ruling force in the world, whatever you believe about that's going to directly dictate every behavior you have. If you believe that God is incredibly forgiving with you and generous and kind and gentle, if you believe in that kind of God truly, doesn't that empower you to be forgiving and kind and gentle? And if you perceive a God who is merciful, won't you be merciful? So God, he's saying, if you're a merciful person, you're going to get a merciful God. If you're blameless, you're going to get blameless God. If you're pure, you're going to get pure God. But those who are crooked, those who like this servant says, man, God is mean. God reaps where he does not sow. God is, is cruel. I think what you see here is God goes, okay, if that's what you want, that's how you can have it. That's how you want to be. And for you and me as a believer, we're supposed to be constantly remembering of, okay, who is our God? David lays it out. God is a shield. God is a defender. God is someone you could run to in your time of need. You and I know a God who would condescend down to earth and give his life so that you and I could live with him for eternity. We're supposed to have the view of God of God is far more generous than I could ever imagine. Far more forgiving than I could ever believe possible. Gives mercy new each and every day. If I know that about my God, how's that supposed to shape how I go out into the world and deal with issues and deal with all that God has entrusted to me? 
It's been true in the entire Old Testament too that if you're merciful, you're gonna, God will show himself merciful. If you're blameless, he'll show himself as blameless. But for the crooked, God is gonna seem torturous. And for the haughty, God will bring them down. David is saying, know that this is your God. Now live like it and you'll see him to be this way in your life. And so in verse 29, he says, for you are my lamp, O Lord, and, the, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you, I can run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. I love these verses right here. Because what he's saying is, God, you lead me. I want to see what's in front of me by your light. I want to see what's in front of me empowered by your light. I want, if there's an army in front of me, I want to know that I can face it because you're with me. For by you, I can run against a troop. If my God wants to empower me to jump over a huge obstacle, by my God, I can leap over a wall. I believe my God can empower me, and I believe I can and I will. Confidence in my God can allow me to do anything. He's not limited by me, but my God has the ability to change my limits. Maybe today you're sitting somewhere where you just feel like you're just hitting your limit and just stuff is super hard and it just seems like you have a army against you and there's just obstacles in front of you that you cannot overcome and that may be true, but this is the kind of God that you can run to and say, God, help me see this through your light. God, change my limits. God, I want to be someone who, for by you, I can run against a troop. This army that seems like they're against me, God, I can face them if I'm with you. That these obstacles that I cannot overcome, I want you to change my limits. For by you, I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Maybe the obstacles that you're facing right now are opportunities for you to pray to our God the way that David prays. God, help me see things through your light. Change my limits. So, so far, those are the three sections. This is who our God is. Our God has delivered and he can deliver and he will deliver. And then obedience to him leads to human flourishing. And then it's gonna go back to our God is able to deliver in verse 32. For, our, for who is our God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge, and he has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. 
Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. You were the one who delivered. You were the one who came through for me. So you had God came angry. David being faithful, obedient, following God. And then you have a David who is empowered by that God. God, you came through for me. You were strong. My enemies, I've seen them fall. I've seen you deliver. You have a a man who has cried out to God, seen God come through, faithfully obedient in, in the way that he lives life. And now he goes, my God can destroy my enemies, the obstacles in front of me. My God can come through for me. I've seen him deliver in the past, and I'm going to look forward anticipating future deliverance and future salvation. He's a confident man. My God can do amazing things. As David is narrating this to his kingdom, this is what, they, this is what he wants his nation to know. There's going to be hard times coming, enemies, times that you need deliverance. There's going to be hardship coming in those moments Our God is the one who can deliver. Our God is the one who can provide salvation. Our God is the one who can overcome those enemies, and you'll see them fall if you faithfully obey him. And then it ends with going back to, this is who God is. Verse 47, the Lord lives. That reminds me, that just like, you know, I I wish we did it more, but you know the tradition on Easter morning when the congregation, the the pastor, the worship leader will say, he is risen. And everyone goes, he is risen indeed. Dude, that is, what an amazing just thing when you're in a room full of people and just the declaration of Jesus is alive. Like we don't serve a fallen, lost, dead God. We We don't follow a prophet who left a lot of good teachings and now you just need to follow his teachings and hope that you do things well enough to earn God's favor. We follow a God who died according to the scriptures, was buried according to the scriptures, and rose again. And our God Jesus is alive. That is rad. And so verse 47, he opens with, the Lord lives. My God, our God is alive. He's present. He can hear you. And blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and brought down people under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. We have a God who has, who can, and who will deliver. As God's people who read this, who reflect this, as the congregation, the the, the nation who would have been reciting this, these are the thoughts we're supposed to have ingrained in us. These are the thoughts we're supposed to have just churned over in our head because hard times are going to come. And when they come, this is what we're supposed to run to. This is what we're supposed to trust in. Everything else will fail you. It opens by saying, our God is a rock. And Jesus says that there's two kinds of people in this world. They're the kind of people who will build their life on the rock. And they're the kind of people who will build their life on anything else. And anything else could be money or fame or accolade, what people think about you, how good of a parent you are, the kind of thing that you drive, whatever. 
And the people who build their life on anything else, sometimes their homes, the house they build, they look really, really nice. Their kids are super obedient. The wife and husband just seem to have an amazing marriage. Everything seems to be good. But what Jesus is saying is one day there always is a season when hard times come. And if your life is built on anything, no matter how good the house looks, no matter how good the family dynamic, if your house is built on anything other than the rock, when flood waters rise, when rain comes, when wind comes howling, when chaos comes, the one who's built on the rock, his house will stand firm, but everything else will fall away. Everything else will disappoint you and let you down. This is a God who will not let you down. This is a God that you can trust in. That when really hard times come, when the enemy is attacking you, when there's obstacles, it seems like you're just hitting your limit. This is a God that you can trust in. And he's proven it to you and me. We have a God who's so serious about you and me. He's proven it on the cross by taking it on himself. Every other religion, every other system, you're just hoping. But our God takes you and me so seriously that he would put the down payment as his own life to say, I'm going to be there for you. You can come boldly to me in your time of need when you've most messed up, most screwed up. You can come boldly to the throne of grace and receive it in your time of need. This is a God who's very personal, who wants to hear your voice when you need him. He can change your limits. He will be there for you as a shield and a refuge and a fortress when you need him. So Jesus, we pray that we would be the kind of people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that as scary, hard times come that we would obediently get in the ring. That as a Goliath stands cursing your name, that we would in obedience walk forward and, and trust you. And I pray that the sufferings that we're going through, the hardships that are happening in this room this week, Lord, I pray that those sufferings would produce endurance in us because we would, we would run to you as a shield or as a fortress and we would see you come through and we would get worn down less by it because we know my God has, he can, and he will deliver. I pray that seeing you move in our lives and in the lives of our friends and of our family would produce character in us because we would see that our God loves us, is generous with us, is merciful towards us. And we would know that we could be people of integrity and of generosity and forgiveness because of who you are and what you've done and what you continue to do. And I pray that that would cause us to be a people of just overwhelming hope in a world that so desperately needs hope. Help us to be lights set on a hill that we can in boldness go into our community and share about our King who is alive, Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.